What were the traditions of fighting in medieval Jewish communities in Europe? We'll discuss that today on Footnoting History. Hello, and welcome to Footnoting History. I am your host, Elizabeth. I know I've done a lot of episodes lately on 20th century America, but I'm actually, as many of you know, a trained medievalist. This means, among other things, that I have friends with some cool hobbies related to the Middle Ages. Now, some of these hobbies are focused on recreating medieval European masses. Others brew medieval beer and bring medieval drinks such as gluk to department holiday parties. But I think the activity that might capture the imagination the most are my friends who practice medieval sword fighting techniques. After reading The Princess Bride and taking fencing at summer camp in sixth grade, I thought I was pretty up on medieval sword fighting, but it turns out that I was woefully uneducated on this topic. Luckily, I have two friends who separately came to love this skill, and they've been more than happy to share their knowledge with me and others. One of whom, Ken Mondeshine, teaches sword fighting and has translated several medieval fencing manuals. He is also presented on medieval martial arts at academic conferences. Like many, before speaking with Ken, I largely saw medieval European sword fighting as brutish and lacking technical skill. But his efforts to reveal the various styles and amount of training that goes into these sports have shown me to be very wrong. You'll find links to Ken's work in the further reading under this episode at www.footnotinghistory.com. My second friend involved in sword fighting, Rebecca Glass, does so competitively and researches the history of Jewish medieval fencing masters. And it is with those stories, this specific community in medieval Europe, on whom I want to focus. And I'm actually going to narrow it even farther in that manuals and directives for fighting etiquette survive in Jewish works from Venice, France, and Portugal, but I'm mostly limiting my overview to those from Austria and Germany. I need to thank Ken, Rebecca, and their friends for suggesting works on this topic, which you will also find in our further reading. First then, we need to work on our terminology. When not fighting or researching or working, Rebecca serves on the governing council of the HEMA Alliance. HEMA stands for Historical European Martial Arts. If, after listening to this episode, you are interested in HEMA, I would strongly urge you to check out the HEMA Alliance, and yes, the link is in the further reading. Through the HEMA Alliance and other organizations, there are clubs worldwide. Some of you might have immediately caught the fact that these practices are referred to as martial arts, and not simply sword fighting or fencing. That's because HEMA encompasses multiple past forms of modern sport fighting. It is believed, for example, that fencing, boxing, and wrestling grew out of these fighting traditions. The goal of the HEMA Alliance, as they state on their website, is, quote, as a community, we are bringing back to life the dead arts of the old European masters, end quote. Right there, we probably have enough for multiple episodes of footnoting history, which is why I decided and kind of had to narrow my focus. While most European fighting masters were Christian, evidence has been found to support the belief that fighting was also a skill valued in medieval Jewish European communities. In later medieval Europe, Jews were often, when not simply expelled from a region or country, required to live in ghettos or portions of cities where minority groups were forced to live, and in medieval Europe, Jews were a minority group. Medieval Europe was a rather violent place. It was so violent, for example, that the clergy and the pope tried twice to curb the excessive fighting. 
First, they instituted what is known as the Peace of God, circa 1000, which was intended to limit the persons on which a combatant could attack. Peasants, clergy, children, female virgins, and widows were declared off-limits pretty quickly. Unfortunately, the Peace of God was fairly unsuccessful in protecting these groups or really any others. A century later, the church authorities tried again with a truce of God that limited the days on which Christian men could proceed in combat. Again, this plan did little to stem the rising bloodshed or countless deaths of the defenseless. And then the church tried alternative outlets, such as the Crusades in which Christian soldiers fought Muslims. But since it was a holy crusade, a number of crusaders decided that the goal was not just to fight the Muslim infidel, but also, depending on whom you ask, to take revenge for killing Christ out on or convert the Jews, most of whom would have rather died than convert, and some were not even given the choice. Thousands of Jews in Germany, France, and England were horrifyingly slaughtered by crusaders on their way to the Holy Land. If not slaughtered, some Jewish communities committed mass suicide rather than convert to Christianity. Jews, therefore, were already a potential target within European regions, and it was about to get worse. By the 13th century, Conspiracy theories that painted Jews as murderers of Christian children or poisoning wells from which a town got its water became widespread. While there was and is no evidence for these stories, they made life much harder for Europeans of Jewish descent. In 1215, the leaders of the Catholic Church put forth a number of canons or religious rulings, created an assembly known as the Fourth Lateran Council. Among these rules were that Jews and Muslims living in Europe were required to wear a colored piece of cloth in the shape of a star or circle or square, a Jewish hat, which was a style with a wide round brim and it went into a point at the top, or a robe. These restrictions were put into place to make it easier to identify Jews or Muslims because Christians, Jews, and Muslims were actually blending into each other and the church was fearful of the intermarriages. Additionally, from 1200 to 1500, Jews were expelled, for example, from England and Spain, required to live in ghettos in other areas like Venice, and during the Black Death, Jews were accused of causing the pestilence, and the multiple erroneous legends, like the one I mentioned above, that Jews killed Christian children to use their blood in their Passover recipes, continued throughout Europe well into the 20th century. Self-defense, then, for European Jews was a matter of survival. All right. I've laid out why fighting knowledge was a part of life in medieval Europe and would have been especially good for members of the Jewish community to know. But how can we know how people fought? The techniques they used, the motions they practiced. Well, the secrets of fighting were passed down from master to student, and in my mind, I picture it like a Jedi master to his Padawan. So the secrets of fighting, therefore, were not needed to be written or drawn most often because it was an oral culture. The directions were largely spoken or demonstrated. No one reads the Jedi holy texts. As in all things medieval, relatively few sources survive, but many that are due are available for free at Wichtenauer, an online depository of primary and secondary source material on medieval European martial arts. These surviving Fechtbücher, or fighting books, and most of the sources for HEMA-related activities that we have, especially the ones in translation, are often the works of Christian sword-fighting masters, which is understandable, as most Europeans were Christian, but also the realities of Jewish life in medieval Europe make source survival unlikely. Pogroms, expulsions, fires, whether they be accidental or deliberate, and natural disasters would have made it difficult to keep books long-term, especially, one could theorize, as those trained to fight would have been the first line of defense, and casualties were high for fighters, Christian or Jew. 
Luckily, we have a few tantalizing pieces of evidence for the fighting styles embraced and taught by members of medieval Europe's Jewish communities. For this episode, what I plan to do is provide an overview of some of the most well-known fighting masters believed to have been of Jewish or Jewish descent. First, then, we have Ot Yud, or as it translates, Ot the Jew. The name alone seems like a good indicator that this fighting master was Jewish. But the surname Yud has belonged, even in the Middle Ages, to Christian men and women, and today it comes down to us potentially as Judd. So how do we know that Ot had been, at least, born a Jew, is that all the surviving treatises refer to him as a Tofter Yud, or baptized Jew, meaning he had been baptized into the Christian faith. Ot is believed to have lived in the first half of the 15th century in Austria, and also to have served Austrian rulers as their fighting master. Ott most likely lived through a period known as the Vienna Gesera, or persecutions of 1420 to 1421, at the end of which there were no Jews left living in Vienna, and this could be a key fact in either learning more about who Ott was or why he converted. At the time, Vienna was led by Duke Albert V, who had been elected to become the German king, and he chose the new name Albert II. With this election, Vienna became the new capital of the Holy Roman Empire. Albert II decided to heed the call for a crusade on the Hussites, who were followers of Christian reformer Jan Hus. They were kind of proto-Protestants, if you will. And Albert II set out to the kingdom of Bohemia, which is now known as the Czech Republic, to fight the reformers who dared to reject the Pope's call for the selling of indulgences. According to a chronicle made by surviving Jews called the Vienna Gesera, this duke-come-king was preparing for war and believed that the Jews were supplying his enemies. As the duke left for war, he ordered the expulsion of poor Jews from Austria, and the wealthy Jews were tortured but allowed to stay for a price. Eventually, many, but not all, Jews were sent on rudderless boats down the Danube and floated to Hungary. The duke, angry that the Jews had been let go in this manner and that only some had been tortured, decided to show his power by focusing on the remaining Jews and having their leading rabbi convert. But though the rabbi was tortured, he did not give in and instead died from his pain. Now, it's at this point in the Chronicle, which again is from the Jewish perspective, that terminology might leap out at us. You see, the Duke at this point summons a person only referred to as a baptized Jew for advice on how to deal with the wealthy Jews still there who are unwilling to convert. Obviously, there might be a number of baptized Jews living in Vienna, but given that Ott would have been alive and most likely an adult at this time, and that he was later trusted, according to reports, to being the fighting master to the Austrian princes, it is hard not to wonder if Ott was the baptized Jew being referenced here. If so, the chroniclers have no love loss for him. First, the baptized Jews suggested the Duke not feed the imprisoned Jews for three days, believing at the end of the three days the Jews would eat whatever was offered them, even if it broke Jewish law. The plan didn't work. Then, the anonymous baptized Jew suggested that the Duke just baptize every male under 15. The Jewish women heard about this plan, told their community, and many committed suicide. Eventually, the Duke was unable to convert any of the remaining 200 to 300 Jews of Vienna and instead had them burnt at the stake on March 12, 1421. From that point and for the remainder of Ott's life, Jews were not allowed in Vienna or most of Austria, so it is understandable that the surviving fighting treatises made special note that he was Ott the baptized Jew, explaining his continued presence. I will also note that in the Chronica Austriae, which is the Latin I had to read for this episode if you follow me on Twitter, does not include any mention of a baptized Jew's involvement. So it is also possible that this was a literary trope included in the narrative decades later when written, 
or that Ott's fame as a baptized Jewish fighting master in Austria rankled in the Jewish community that had escaped to Hungary, and they gave him a nefarious role in their story. This is all conjecture, and it's at this point that I should also state forced conversions of Jewish children were obviously not unknown, so we can't even say for sure that Ott chose to convert. What we do know, based on multiple sources, is that in 1420 to 1421, the Jews of Vienna were expelled or killed, but that Ott the baptized Jew remained and so excelled at his craft that he was hired to teach the king's children. I want to take a moment to address what is probably a concern for listeners. I had stated that this episode would be about fighting traditions in medieval European Jewish communities, and here I am discussing a Jewish convert to Christianity. Doesn't this mean that my topic is not actually about the Jewish community? Okay, here is my answer. We know that Jewish books, along with all other possessions, were burned during programs. We can assume that Ott did not miraculously learn how to wrestle post-conversion, but had in fact been raised learning and practicing them in the Jewish area of Vienna he would have grown up. We can therefore surmise that while Ott may have perfected these moves, they were within a communal tradition. With his conversion, they became palatable to the Christian rulers of the city where he lived. So what were Ott's signature moves, and why were they so impressive that he's believed to have trained Austrian rulers? Ott taught grappling, similar to wrestling or jujitsu today, or ringen as it was called in German. The instructions were recorded in numerous early German fighting treatises. First, Ott explained that when wrestling, skill, speed, and application of strength is most important, and in that order. He states that you are to grab your opponent's arm, one arm by the bicep, one by the forearm. You pull the forearm towards you, lift the arm, stick your head under your opponent's arm, kick out their knee, toss them over your back. Does that make sense? Confusing, right? Well, there are images, videos, and a compilation translation online so you can learn how to do it at home, carefully. Or join a local HEMA Alliance club. There are also multiple modifications after the initial hold that you can try. Ott's renown for this teaching was far and wide. Another master, also believed to be Jewish, focused not on wrestling, but mounted and longsword fencing. Jude Lu, believed to have been writing in 15th century Germany, is known to have glossed, which is writing annotated comments, on at least one section on how to sword fight while riding a horse. Unfortunately, while little is known about Ott Jude, even less is known about Jude Lu, although there is some argument of whether he glossed or explained a section of a mnemonic poem on longsword fencing. The longsword was the traditional sword of late medieval Europe, and when you think of historical sword fighting, it's probably what you imagine. Lou's gloss on the longsword incorporates poetry and begins by providing a stanza worthy of Mallory and his Mort d'Arthur. I have a translation of that stanza courtesy of Corey Winslow, a HEMA practitioner in the United States, and it goes as follows. Young knight, learn to have love for God. Honor women and maidens, so waxes your learning and learn things that adorn you and in wars sorely court. Wrestle well, grappler. Lance, sword, and messer manfully handle, and in others' hands ruin. You therein and hit there. Let hang and let drive, so that your wisdom one may masterfully prize. The author then goes on to explain that, quote, Here begins a good common lesson of the longsword, yet such a very good secret art is locked therein. End quote. One of the reasons we have a list of fighting masters, such as Atyud, is that in 1470, a German fencing master named Paulus Kahl wrote down, and in a way, immortalized 17 fighting masters, himself included. 
The men on the list were felt by Cal to follow the tradition of Johannes Lichtenauer, a 14th or 15th century fighting master many had learned their styles from. In this work, Ot Yud, the baptized Jew, is included, but not, for instance, Yud Lu. Yud Lu, however, is believed to have known and traded practices and fighting styles with another fencing master on the list, Peter von Danzig. So it doesn't seem that Cal wouldn't have known who Yud Lu was. Perhaps the problem was that Yud Lu was still a Jew. Unlike Ott, he had never converted to Christianity, and in 1470, when Cal published his work, Jews were technically forbidden in Germany. Was it that Paulus Clau didn't want it to be known that a Jew was a master? Or that he didn't want it to let on that he knew Yud Lu? Or was he even keeping Yud Lu a secret? There is much confusion today, for example, on what exactly Yud Lu wrote or glossed in different Frenchring treatises. Perhaps having it known that a Jew was living in Germany and working on the treatises was not considered a good plan? As a convert and trainer to the Austrian princes, however, Ott Yud was, in many ways, a safer bet to include on the list of 17. There are a few other fighting masters in Central Europe believed to have been Jewish, such as Andras Yudin. He, too, would have been of the time and place to be included on Paulus Call's list, but is not. But then neither are three associates of him, with whom he wrote an addendum to important fencing treatise. So there is difficulty teasing out the motivations behind Cal's decision to include or exclude various masters. There is some contention that Andres Juden might have been known under another name, that of Andrzej Lignitzer, a master from Poland and on Cal's list, but that's inconclusive. Because of this lack of evidence, it's hard to know exactly how many Jewish masters there were in medieval Europe, but their existence is not in doubt. Fighting was a way of life in medieval Europe, and this was not dependent on religious persuasion. And for Jews especially, the best defense was probably a good offense. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.